0: How are you? How are we all doing this morning? Good to be with you. Um, We are going to be continuing our summer series, uh, looking entitled Head, Heart, and Hands. We're looking particularly at um, hands, uh, uh, sorry, heart today. Wrong one. Next week is hands. Uh, And we've been considering uh, what it means for all of our beings, our head, our heart, our hands, uh, to be involved in the work of spreading the good news of Jesus to those around us, all of our beings, And as you've heard, this series hasn't just been on a Sunday. Uh, We've had workshops the last couple of weeks on a Wednesday to explore this further. And for those uh, of you who were there, um, I hope you found it to be a tremendous blessing. I know I have. I hope you can make it to the one on the 23rd coming up. So today, we are, like we said, at the middle, at at heart. And more specifically, we are looking at moving our hearts towards the lost. And to help us with that, as we... Just read then, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah, an Old Testament messenger, an Old Testament prophet. Now you might be going, that's a bit of an odd place for a topic like this, but I hope you'll soon see that it is particularly relevant. Uh, Just to give us a bit of a roadmap of our time together, we're going to be spending a fair bit of time looking at a closer look at this account that we've just heard read from Jonah 3:10 to the end of the book. Before we wrap up by considering what we learn from this and what that means for us. So let me pray for us and we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the heart that you have for those that are lost. A heart that um, far exceeds our own and that, in fact, I think challenges our own. And so, Father, I pray that you would be speaking to us right now. I pray that any distractions we might have that might stop us from hearing you, that we might set them aside for the next half hour or so, so that we might hear you clearly speak, Father would uh, the words of my mouth with the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So our count today, our count today from Jonah chapter three verse 10, begins at really, what seems to be the conclusion of the book? Right? The whole book really has been anticipating this very point. You see, right at the beginning of the book of Jonah, God speaks to him, telling him to go. He tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Right, So right from the very beginning of the book, it's been set up for Jonah to go to the city to preach against it, right? And as we come to our reading today, while it's taken a bit of time to reach this point, Jonah has finally done just that, right? He's gone to the city, he's preached against it, and he has, early in this chapter, he's marched into the city, and he's declared 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, what is the result? What happens after this really, really short sermon across the city? Now, don't worry uh, to look for it. You might be familiar with it already, as it is. But you'll know that the phenomenal takes place. Nothing short of the beginning of a citywide revival takes place. The entire city of Nineveh repents from the greatest to the least, from the king to the servants, the entire spectrum of society repents. Now, this is huge, right? We've had revivals in the past. there's, there's, There's books written about the history of revivals that have happened in our world. I don't think any of it compares to what happened in Nineveh as Jonah went in to speak this message. The entire city, the beginning of revival is what we see. And once we understand what the city of Nineveh was like, it gets even bigger. Because really, in the book of Jonah, we get a pretty G-rated version of Nineveh. We get a very, very, calm, very, very um, uh, 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 filtered version of what Nineveh is like. You see, Nineveh, just so that you understand what has actually happened, the magnitude of what has just happened, Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient superpower Assyria. Assyria, at the height of its powers, was one of the cruelest, one of the most violent empires of the ancient times. Their kings would often record and pridefully display the results of their acts of evil and brutality in in inscriptions with graphic detail. It was fairly common, for example, for the Assyrians to typically cut off the legs and one arm of a defeated enemy, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as they were dying. It was fairly common to force the friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones, often elevated on poles. They often pulled out prisoners' tongues, stretched out their bodies with ropes, that wasn't a Roman invention, so they could be flayed alive, and their skins displayed on city walls. Enemy heads were severed and hung, on those walls. There were impalings of heads on stakes. Some, there are some pictures that have as many as eight heads on one stake. I, I'll stop there because it is pretty graphic, but you get the point, right? Assyria is infamous as a superpower for their torture, their cruelty, and their extreme violence. See, they wouldn't just win battles. They wouldn't just win wars. They would crush everybody that stood in their path. And Nineveh, Being a capital city, like any capital city, would have embodied the culture of the nation to its fullest. Which means this, which means Nineveh is full of this this evil and pride that Assyria is known for. Nineveh is full of the violence, torture, and brutal reputation that Assyria is known for. So I'm hoping you're beginning to see how extra phenomenal the beginning of this revival is, the beginning of this repentance is. We see that the king enforces a citywide fast, right? He he takes off his royal robes, he puts on sackcloth, right? A physical gesture symbolizing removing all status before God, and he says to his people, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The capital city of the nation known across the ancient world as the most violent, the most brutal, is told by their king to give up their evil ways and their violence. This is absolutely shocking. And so coming back to our reading today, at the beginning of our reading, what does God do when He sees this citywide beginning of revival, this citywide repentance? He sees their sorrow, their genuine sorrow, And instead of destroying the city as he threatened to do, he relents and mercifully allows the city to continue. Now, this would be a tremendous ending to this book, wouldn't it? You've got the prophet. The prophet's gone to the city. He's preached the message. The city has has repented entirely, and now they are turning towards God, and and God has spared them. But that's not the end, is it? We have another chapter to go. Because Jonah, the prophet, he has a response that we might not expect. Read with me the first verse of Jonah chapter 4. Verse 1, Jonah 4. But to Jonah, everything that had just happened, the repentance, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Is this something you understand? I don't. This is this is Billy Graham stuff plus more, right? This is exciting stuff, and more than that, this is one tough audience that Jonah's just preached to, right? He would have been an outsider as a prophet. He would have walked into the middle of a city, declaring an offensive message that their city is going to be wiped, and he sees this repentance. Isn't this isn't this exciting? Isn't this amazing? Imagine if we saw something like this in our city, in Sydney. This would be, ch- churches would be like up, in, up in, in uproar just how happy and how celebratory this, this would be. And Jonah is the one who preaches the message. Right? He's the messenger that God uses to bring this about. How stoked would you be if that was you? I mean, I, I get to preach from time to time, right? If this happened after one of my messages, that's the stuff of dreams. But Jonah's response, it's nothing like what we expect it to be. What's his response? Well, he becomes angry. If, if we have a literal translation of verse 1, it would read something like this And it, God's mercy, was evil. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And he burned with anger. You see, Jonah sees what God has done, that he's relented in judgment, he has shown mercy. And Jonah sees that as a tremendous evil. He calls God, he thinks of God as, and His mercy a great evil. Not even Nineveh in this book, as, as, as violent, as evil as they are, are described as greatly evil. Only God's mercy is described as great evil in this book, according to Jonah. It's inconceivable. As one preacher said, do artists get angry when a prominent museum accepts their art for an installation? Do musicians get angry when they're giving a standing ovation at Carnegie Hall? Why then, Jonah, having just preached to the toughest audience of his life, and they've responded positively, down to the very last person, would he melt down in furious rage? Now, that's the obvious question, isn't it? Why is Jonah as angry as he is? Now, important thing to realize to get an answer is, This isn't the first time Jonah's been angry in this book. He actually refers back to that first time when he was angry in what he says next. Read with me from verse 2. Jonah, he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. See, the last time, the last time Jonah was angry, he was kind of passive-aggressive about it. Right? I'm, I, I get that. I, I can be passive-aggressive to my wife. Right? He was passive-aggressive about it. He didn't directly confront God. See, when God initially told him to go, go to the city of Nineveh, preached against it, he didn't want to, but he didn't directly confront God. Instead, what did he do? He went to a port in Joppa, the location's called. He hopped in a boat. He set sail for Tarshish. Now, um, that's what he talks about in that verse when he says he was forestalling by fleeing to Tarshish. Now, I'm going to show you a map, and I hope you can see the dots on, on, on the thing. So, you see Nineveh, where Jonah is meant to go on the top right. You see Joppa, where the port is. So, already he's going in the opposite direction. And he wants to head to Tarshish. We see elsewhere in the Bible, in, in 2 Chronicles 9.21, if you're interested, that the trip from Tarshish to Israel by boat takes about three years. I can imagine Jonah thinking, God, I'm angry. I'm so angry that I'm going to go the complete opposite way. And I'm willing to take three years out of my life to spend in a boat just to avoid doing what you want me to do. This is the ultimate passive-aggressive response, right? But now, now at the end of this book, Jonah is done being passive-aggressive. He's pretty much square up against God directly now, and he's going to give him a piece of his mind. See, why was it that he fled to Tarshish to begin with? Why does he tell God that his life is no longer worth living? Is he just being dramatic? Now, to understand that, I think we need to know a little bit more about Jonah. See, we first meet Jonah, not in the book of Jonah, actually. We meet him in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 14, and it will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow it. I'll read it for us. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Which he had caused Israel to commit. He, Jeroboam, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, I know there's a lot of names, there's a lot of places of geography in those very short verses. And so it's easy to get lost in all of that. But I think these verses are key to help us understand who Jonah is. See, basically, Jonah was a prophet during a time of Israel's history when the country had split into two kingdoms, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom was confusingly called Israel. And there was a certain king when Jonah was a prophet, King Joabon II of the northern kingdom, because of a prophecy that Jonah gives to him, what, he, what the king then does is that he goes to beef up and extend a long section of Israel's northern border. He goes further north, and he expands wider. Right? Why does he do this? To strengthen his borders. To strengthen the defense against the looming superpower and threat to the north. Assyria which we established earlier, Nineveh was the capital city of. Now, just to give you an idea how much Israel's northern border extended to, it actually ended up being extended to the point where it nearly rivaled the borders when Israel was in its golden years, when Israel was a superpower in the region, right? Close to its golden years. This is how far it went. And so if you're an Israelite, if you're King Jeroboam II, this is amazing stuff. This is huge Israel is now looking like the Israel of old. Why? Because of what Jonah gave to him as a prophecy, what God gave to Jonah to give to him. You see, friends, Jonah delivers incredible news for the nation of Israel. He's like a knight in shining armor in a time of great suffering, delivering a message on behalf of God that they have his blessing to protect, extend, and grow their nation, despite Assyria in the north. And not only did he say it would happen, it actually did. And so this is a true prophet. What he said came to pass. Israel was protected. See, why does this make sense of our passage? Why does this make sense of Jonah's anger towards God right now in the face of such amazing and supernatural repentance? It's this. The Ninevites are Jonah's enemies. The Ninevites are Jonah's enemies. The Ninevites are Israel's enemies. You see, church, God's first message to Jonah back in 2 Kings was an instruction to protect Israel from these very people that now God is telling him to preach to. You get that? Jonah wants no part of that. Jonah doesn't want these guys to be spared. Jonah wants their destruction. For Nineveh to be spared by his God... They are Israel's enemy. They have the potential to wipe them out, which they will actually later in history. His fears are justified, right? And so for Jonah to have even walked into Nineveh, to preach against it, would have been the equivalent of of like a Jew walking into the heart of Berlin in the middle of World War II to preach against them. This was insanity. And for God to pardon Israel's enemies infathomable according to Jonah and so I hope I hope you're seeing a little bit about of of Jonah's mind I hope you're seeing a little bit of where Jonah is coming from so how does God how does God respond to Jonah's anger how does he respond well have a look as as he responds to him from verses four let's read it together again from verses four but the Lord replied the Lord replied is it right for you to be angry Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint wanted to die, and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plan? So quickly, what's happened? Jonah's moved out of the city. He's headed east towards an area where he will hopefully see what will happen to Nineveh, probably hoping for God to change his mind and to still overthrow the city as he said he would, right? And so he puts together this makeshift shelter, he sits in it, and he waits. Now, how does God respond? Well, he gives Jonah a bit of an object lesson. I, I don't know why I think about this, but I think of the movie Bennett, like Beckham. You know when the, the, the father is teaching the wife how to, the, soccer, the game of soccer and he uses salt and pepper shakes, um, shakers? God gives Jonah an object lesson like that. And so he provides a leafy plant of sorts for Jonah. And this plant does what, what the makeshift shelter just can't seem to do. It gives him proper shade and comfort in the intensely hot an arid climate drone is in. So naturally, he's pretty stoked at this plant, right? This plant has shot up overnight, it's there, it's giving him comfort. But at dawn, God provides a worm. And the plant is no more. Now, I want you to notice when. When does the worm eat the plant? It's at dawn. It's at dawn before the sun rises. And so by the time the sun has risen, at the peak of its heat, and now, as we read, with an added scorching wind... Jonah has no plant. He's left with his makeshift shelter that doesn't do much of anything. And he's suffering. He's growing faint. And so just as quickly as that plant came, it went. And so naturally, without this plant, and without any shelter, really, to face the scorching wind and heat, he gets angry again. In verse 8, he gets angry again at God. Now, the question is, why, why does God give this object lesson? Why does he go through all this trouble? Now, I want to suggest to you the reason why is to show that Jonah is more similar to the Ninevites than he would like to think. That's the reason. The reason for this object lesson is for Jonah to see that he is more similar to the Ninevites than he would like to think. How? Right? God provides a situation with this plant that has some similarities with what the Ninevites have just gone through, right? Right? See, from this object lesson, both Jonah and Nineveh, they have impending calamities, right? For Jonah, it was the discomfort of the heat. For Nineveh, it was a threat of destruction. Pretty incomparable, I I know, but both impending calamities. Now, the writer actually uses the same word for both the discomfort Jonah experiences and the destruction Nineveh is about to experience. He uses the same word, And so both Jonah and Nineveh have this impending calamity. Also, both Jonah and Nineveh, they try to protect themselves from these calamities, right? What does Jonah do? He tries to protect himself by building a makeshift shelter. What does Nineveh do? Well, he tries to act by, and protect themselves by apologizing and fasting. Also, for both Jonah and Nineveh, God acts mercifully against that calamity, right? For Jonah, God sends a plant. For Nineveh, God relents from destroying them. But that's where the similarities stop. See, the situation has some significant differences because for Jonah, the object lesson goes one step further. See, while God continues to relent against destroying the Ninevites, he does not continue to provide the plan. He takes it away. You see, God does to Jonah, God does to Jonah what Jonah wishes he would do to Nineveh. You get that? God does to Jonah what Jonah wishes God would do to Nineveh. See, Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed. And so what does God do in this lesson for Jonah? Instead of providing mercy from the heat, he lets the calamity of discomfort return in full force for Jonah. In other words, when the worm eats the plant, and when Jonah is again experiencing discomfort, God is giving to Jonah the tiniest of samples of what it would be like if Nineveh experienced the destruction of God as Jonah wished. And so what's God doing then? He's showing Jonah what it looks like when he stops being merciful and he starts acting justly. That's what God's basically saying to Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, if I acted justly to you according to everything you've done, I shouldn't be acting mercifully to you either. And just to illustrate it for you, here's a plant that I'll mercifully give you, and then I'll remove it. That's an illustration of what you deserve. You want Nineveh to be destroyed? You think that's just? Here's the problem, Jonah. It's not just the Ninevites that deserve my judgment. You do as well. You see, church, the book of Jonah, when you read it from start to finish, is so much more about the rebellion of Jonah than the rebellion of the Ninevites. In chapter 1, what does Jonah do? He runs, as we saw in that map. He runs the opposite way. He nearly kills the lives of innocent sailors on the boat. In chapter 2, he sings a song that at no point acknowledges his rebellion. In chapter 3, he speaks a message that is so short, with so little content, one has to wonder if he even wants to be there. And we know from chapter 4, he wants God to destroy Nineveh. He doesn't want him to relent, he's angry. And so Jonah rebels, and then he's shown mercy. Jonah continues to rebel, and then is again shown mercy. And so when we read Jonah, it's Jonah that deserves judgment. Just as much as Nineveh. And so that's God's point when we reach the end of the book. He asks him a rhetorical question in verses 10 and 11. He says, you've been concerned about this plan though you didn't even tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also any, many, many animals, right? God's saying, if you're angry with me from removing this plant, you should be beginning to understand a little bit about how I see things. This is God speaking. God's saying, can't you see, Jonah, That that you wanting me to destroy Nineveh, even when they're genuinely sorrowful, is a bit like destroying your plant. Although it's not just one plant anymore, now it's 120,000 men, women, children, and more. You're my prophet. You should want me to show mercy to Nineveh way more than you want to keep this plant. Do you see, Jonah, my heart? Which, as we turn now to what do we learn? That same rhetorical question that God asks of Jonah is now turned to us. Church, do we see God's heart for the lost? Because if there's anything to learn from the last chapter from the book of Jonah, it's this. That God's heart for the lost will trouble our hearts for the lost. God's heart for the lost will trouble our hearts for the lost. For Jonah... God's heart for the lost extended to those he wished it didn't. He didn't see the Ninevites as lost people needing to be saved. All he saw was enemy. In Jonah's eyes, God's heart for the Ninevites and willingness to relent, as we saw in verse 1, was very wrong to him. And so what does this mean for us then? I reckon that means that when we pray prayers... Asking God that we'd have a heart for the lost. When we pray prayers that we grow in desire for others to know God, like some of the ones we prayed just this Wednesday at the workshop, I want you to realize that those prayers are unbelievably bold. They're unbelievably bold. They're bold because those prayers do at least two things. Those prayers gradually change our sight, and they gradually change our willingness. See, praying for these things means that we are also praying that God would grow in us a desire to have a heart like His. To see the loss as He does. To move towards the loss like He does. And this must therefore include seeing our enemies as those who need the mercy and grace of God. As we grow to see that our enemies need, to need the mercy and grace of God, we grow in willingness gradually to play a part in declaring the good news of Jesus to them. These are bold prayers. As we continue the 21 days of prayer, each prayer that we see in the graphic, each prayer that is written up by the members of our congregation, they are bold prayers. I can only guess, I can only guess that if Jonah prayed prayers like this every day, right? if he prayed prayers like that every day, I reckon he would have shown infinitely more compassion to the Ninevites than what we saw, right? Now, you might be going, hang on, Dom. I'm not, like, I'm not like Jonah. I don't have enemies. I haven't had a sworn enemy since I was in primary school when I decided that the guy who called me names would be my sworn enemy, an arch-demesis. I haven't, I haven't got any enemies. There is no one I'm aware of that would want me dead. I don't want anybody dead. There's nobody I'm at war with. I don't have enemies. What are you talking about? Now, I want to suggest that that might not be quite true. Maybe what we should actually do to get a better sense of our enemies is to kind of reverse the question a little bit, to go back a little bit. See, rather than ask, who is my enemy, it might be better to ask, who do I find difficult to love? You get that? Rather than ask, who is my enemy? It might be better to ask, who do I find difficult to love? I imagine if Jonah was to answer that question, I'm sure the Ninevites would be at the top of his list. See, we don't have to be patriots to the extent Jonah is, or to be at war to have enemies. Because if I answer honestly the question, who I struggle to love, who I find difficult to love, it's quite likely that they're the ones... At least I'm treating as enemies. Southwest, I, I don't know about you, but while I find it difficult to answer the question, who are my enemies, I sadly and pretty unfortunately find it pretty easy to answer, who do I struggle to love? Who do I find difficult to love? And so I turn the question to you, who do you find difficult to love? I think the answer to that question is, at a basic level was whoever can threaten us, right? Right? who threaten our welfare, who threaten our reputation, who those who at a basic level threaten to stop getting what we want and challenge our well-being. Maybe for you it's a group within society. Maybe it's those who are difficult to love who are of a political preference. Maybe a sexual preference. A racial background, perhaps. Maybe those of another religion or maybe a non-religion that we might find difficult to love. See, when we pray for God to have a heart like His, to create in us a desire like His, for you this will include desiring to see those groups within society saved, but also be willing to play a part in declaring the good news of Jesus to them. But maybe for you it's not not groups. Maybe the answer is more individual. Individual. Right? Maybe there are specific people that you have in mind that you know you find difficult to love. Maybe it's that colleague that talks behind your back, that relative that ridicules your faith, that friend who has betrayed your trust, that that other parent that you know that just always judges you the way you raise your kids. When we pray for God to have a heart like his, for you, that will mean including desiring to see those same people saved and be willing to play a part in declaring the good news of Jesus to them. That's what you're praying. Friends, God's heart for the lost will likely trouble our hearts for the lost. This is a bold prayer. And so, as we close, should we stop? Should we stop praying these prayers? They're troubling, they're bold. Should we just stop? As we close, the answer has to be no. No. I absolutely know. You see, church, while God sent a leafy plant to Jonah to show him that he was just as lost and in need of mercy as the Ninevites were, God has done for us something far greater. He hasn't just sent us a plant. He sent us His Son. He sent us His Son to show us that we are just as lost and in need of mercy while we were enemies to him, right? The Apostle Paul writes in that famous verse, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were difficult to love, Christ died for us. This is an extravagant love, a lavish love, that he would send his son to die for us even when we were opposed to him. And so if you're visiting church today and you're checking out Christianity, a lot of this message has, um, just to be very clear, it's kind of been to the family of believers. I hope it's been interesting for you to hear from the Bible a little bit, but I hope even more important to you, for you is that you know that God has spared no expense to demonstrate His love for you. If you'd like to find out more, if you have questions, keep coming. I encourage you to keep coming. Speak to the person who brought you. I'm happy to speak to you as well. I'd love to, actually. But especially come back in February, as, as John was saying, um, when we have um, uh, four weeks looking at the top questions about Christianity that we had a survey from. We sent, a, we sent like about 200 responses out to people who, who don't call themselves Christians, who, who had a question for God, and we'll be dealing with the top four. So come back to that. But back to those who are Jesus followers for a moment. The only way to truly see those who we find difficult to love our enemies, the way God does, is to remember that we too were enemies of God. It's only when we dwell on that, when we pray about that, when we let that truth sink deeply into the core of who we are, can we begin to overflow our hearts to those we find difficult to love, the way God does. Let me give you a quick example from history. Right? Back in 1907, back in 1907, a revival broke out. You know, at a Bible conference in Pyongyang, right now the capital of North Korea. Those attending the conference, they came under a deep conviction, especially when the preacher called them to repent of their traditional hatred of the Japanese. Now, the Korean Christians, they they knew they were saved by nothing they did. They knew they were loved, even though they were enemies of God. But it hadn't sunk deeply enough for them to forgive the Japanese. In fact, their moral behavior as Christians as a Christian nation now, probably made them feel morally superior to Japan, which had been historically oppressive. But in the light of the good news of Jesus, however, the Koreans at the conference saw that they stood before God, equally sinful, equally condemned, with all other human beings, yet rescued, completely undeserved, in Christ. And that drained away all their pride. They drained away all their bitterness. And they returned home from the conference with a new willingness to, to repent of their wrongdoing. Right? People went house to house repairing relationships. There was mass repentance and conversion that took place. The church grew explosively. The Methodist church, for example, doubled in membership in one calendar year. Southwest, while we are certainly praying for our family and friends to encounter Jesus, to pray... For hearts for the lost, it means that God is moving our hearts, even those we consider as enemies. And so, in the cards that you've got in your bullets in front in front of you, absolutely write three family and friends that you want to bring to February. But maybe add a fourth. Maybe someone that you find difficult to love. Maybe you should put that in there too. Let me pray. Father God, restore to us, as the psalmist writes, the joy of your salvation. Grant to us a willing spirit. Then we will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Father God, we pray that often when we pray prayers that just ask for our hearts to be burdened by the lost, uh, we we stop short at those that we most naturally care about. We think of certain family members that don't yet know you. We think of uh, friends that don't yet know you, people that we uh, would get along with so easily and yet we forget that your heart extends far beyond that. That the prayer to have hearts for the lost means to go where it is uncomfortable and go to people that we would even find difficult to love. And so remind us of the gospel, that we too were your enemies and yet you loved us. Make that truth sink deep into our very beings so that we might overflow and do the same. In Jesus' name we pray.